We've been working through a series um, for a little while now on the Ten Commandments, and uh, the aim really is to understand God's heart as it was given through these words to Moses, the seed of the Bible, the first written words of God in the history of mankind, and written by the very finger of God, and so have this um, unchanging um, power to convict and to bring us to a place of self-knowledge so that we can turn to God and be changed by Him. And as we've worked our way through these, we've realized that they're much deeper and much more penetrating than any of us ever realized in the first place. So uh, we're nearly finished, actually. We're at the Ninth Commandment, and I'll read it to you quickly. I wonder if you could turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, though, which is on page 1759 in the Brown Bibles at the back, and there's a, a bunch more of them if you want to go and pick one up. You're welcome to keep one if you don't own a Bible. Page 1759, I'm going to read to you from James 1 in just a second. Ten Commandments. So, the situation, of course, is that God's delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness, awaiting their opportunity to go into the Promised Land. But now that God has made them his own people, he wants to define for them what their lives should look like. And he says, it says, And God spoke all these words in Exodus 20, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then down to verse 16 in Exodus 20, it just says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. As I mentioned, I want to read to you James 1, verse 12 to 18. And I just want you to pay attention to everything in here that that has to do with truth and lies. And uh, because this will help shine light on where we're going today. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person when he is tempted, when he, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire... Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth, by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." Truth and lies, the truth about lies. I, um, I remember the first time I lied, or maybe the first time I was caught in a lie, because I was, it was the summer of 1987, and I was uh, four years old. I'm a child of the 80s. Got love for you if you were born in the 80s. Anyone born in the 80s? So I was a child of the 80s, summer 1987, and um, we were on holiday. It was a sabbatical, actually. My dad was in ministry. We were on sabbatical in Florida, and... Um, the, this couple had let us stay in their home. It had a swimming pool. And uh, I was outside, and we had like a snorkeling mask, one of those ones with the big pane of glass at the front. And there were some baby frogs that had emerged um, out of the bushes near the swimming pool. And um, I don't know what got into me, but I decided to squash one with the snorkeling mask. And so just squash the thing and um, see what would happen, I suppose bit of a study in anatomy, and um, I was immediately reported to my parents by my older brother, James, who told them what I had done, and they asked me, did you do this? 
And I said, no, of course. Um, I think I was quite late to the whole lying thing. They say that you're more intelligent if you learn to lie earlier. Four seems to me quite late. But anyway, I, I said no, and obviously they knew I'd done it. And my parents made it a memorable occasion. Um, they enforced so strongly on me that day. Uh, they saw it not so much about the frog. It was about the frog, but it was more about me lying. They enforced upon me uh, very, very memorably that I must never lie. It wasn't abuse or anything like that. Don't worry about that. But I was, <laughs> there was some, some discipline went on there. And um, I suppose it just kind of shows us that lies and death are kind of inextricably intertwined. It's true in the Bible. It was true for me that day that I, I'd, I'd, taken, I'd taken life and there was lies involved. And the whole thing is just an image of what sin is and how sin works in the human heart. And so really, when we're thinking about this command, that you shan't bear false testimony against your neighbor, that you shan't speak untruth about another person, really what we're thinking about then is the importance in the biblical mind of truth and the danger of lies. And I just want to narrow down a little bit on what what exactly is meant by this before we start to open it up. I don't think that when it says that we're meant to uh, to, to speak truth, that it's not saying that you always have to speak everything you know and be an open book. Um, That's not necessarily helpful to anybody. I have a friend um, in South Africa who is um, a little bit socially challenged, and he was, um, not all South Africans are, but some, and he was was convicted one day that he needed to um, have good relationships with everyone around him, and he he felt he had to go and apologize to a girl he knew in the church. And he went up to her and said, I just want to say sorry to you because I thought you were ugly. And I I warned you, this guy is a little socially challenged. And there is a wonderful picture that obviously not all words are helpful. And not all all opinions have to find the light of day. Not all um, knowledge has has to emerge into the light. That's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach that we are just to be open books, always speaking everything we know in any given situation. Nor does the Bible teach that um, speaking truth is always the righteous thing in in every single circumstance. Because there are moments, quite a few of them in the Bible, where um, people actually lie to save and preserve life. They lie to enemies. Um, You can think of the example of Rahab, who was that prostitute in Jericho who took in the spies. And she hid them in her house, which was the first lie. And then, of course, she... She said that she didn't know where they were, and so she was involved in a whole uh, web of deceit, but it was for the, for the cause of preserving life. Another example that comes up in one of the, um, in the book of Judges is a woman called Yael, which means Yahweh is God. And Yael is, uh, has the, the opportunity to uh, come across a general of the opposing, an enemy army called Cicero. This man was called Cicero, and he comes in, he's, he's running away from the battlefield, and he comes into her, her home to seek refuge. And she uh, pretends to be on his side. And she um, gives him a glass of milk. And he goes to sleep. And the woman takes a tent peg and drives it through his skull into the ground. And uh, the whole point, as gruesome as these stories are, uh, the whole point, of course, is that she she's, she's actually deceives him for the purpose of preserving life in the end, that she preserves the life of her people, that she is an enemy, a more mortal enemy of God's people. And so we, one of the common examples that's used of this is the example of when uh, people who had some kind of, maybe they were devout Christians or some other moral 
incentive uh, hid Jews in the Second World War. You know, there are famous accounts of this, of hiding Jews in, in parts of their homes um, in order to preserve life. And if a Nazi came knocking on your door, what do you do? Do you feel that you have to, in the name of truth, speak the truth in all circumstances? And some Christians actually found this an intense moral dilemma because they want to be righteous before God. That's what motivated them to hide the Jews in the first place. But many also came to the conclusion that they could lie for the sake of preserving life. And that's just something you need to untangle for yourself. Um, I know where I sit on those, that issue, but to be honest, that's not the point of this command. This command is, not, is mainly about that the righteous are people who speak truth, love truth, and that righteousness and truth are bound together in, the life, in your life. And what I want to show you is, 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 I want to give you a window into how truth and lies affect relationships. And I want to look at that through three lenses, through um, your relationship with God, your relationship with each other, with other people, and then your relationship with yourself, and show you how truth and lies come to bear on all of these relationships and are fundamental to becoming a whole person in the biblical understanding of what it means to be changed by God. I want to begin then by talking about knowing God, knowing God in truth. In some ways, um, well, it, it wouldn't necessarily be the natural place to start because usually when we're preaching, we want to come to the most important thing at the end. And uh, really, I flipped that on its head. Jesus said, I, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the reason why I want to deal with your relationship with God first is partly because of a chronological reason and a logical reason. The chronological reason is that this was the first relationship in history that was destroyed by lies. It was destroyed by the lies of Satan in the garden, right? When his deception led to the breakdown of trust between Adam and even God. There was a chronological sequence here, the first relationship to break down. And also there's a logical reason. This is the most important relationship in your life, or, or should be. And you cannot experience wholeness as a person, and you can't experience wholeness even in these other relationships that we're going to speak about until this one is in order in your heart, in, in your life, until you know God in truth. That's why I want to begin here. And really the essential thing we need to understand is how lies erode our relationship with God in, in our day-to-day -day life. I want to show you how that's the case. It's not just the fact that your sin separates you from God. We're used to that idea, aren't we? That sin is like a barrier between us and God. God is holy, we are not, and it's our sin that separates us. It's our sin that Jesus came to take away from us when he bled on the cross. We understand that. But before even sin came in to separate us from God, a lie came in prior to that. When the, when the serpent began to deceive Adam and Eve, it was a lie that began to turn their hearts away from God. Now, perhaps believing the lie was the first sin. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, and you could think about it different ways. But it's interesting to see it that way, isn't it? Before they took the fruit... They believe the lie. And so I want to show you a few ways that lies break down your relationship with God. And the first is in the area of sin and temptation itself, as I've just been describing. Every time you sin, it's because you believe a lie about God. Now this makes sense. Jesus said in John 8 that Satan is a liar 
And he says he's the father of lies, who's been lying from the very beginning. What's the lie that you believe when you sin? And that's why I read to you from James 1 right at the start. It's there in verse 16. It says, Do not be de- deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Now, it's really hard for me to overstate the importance of what I'm saying here. Every time that you're tempted, the reason you give way to desire is because in that moment, in the deepest part of you, somewhere in your soul, you believe a lie about the sin. You believe that the, the thing that you are to do or the thing that you are to take, the action that you want to take, is going to give you soul satisfaction or soul happiness. That's the essential lie, isn't it? And with it is the lie that God will not. That he is far away, that he is not, doesn't have your best interests and doesn't care about you enough to give you what you need in those moments. So think, about, think about the sins which you, or perhaps the sin which you are most habitually involved in in your life. The thing which you go back to most frequently. The thing which you can't break the neck of. Sometimes as a Christian you can sense that there's something in your life which you feel frustratedly at war with. It's not just about your behavior. Beneath the behavior is the belief in a lie. God doesn't love you or that he doesn't have your best interests at heart and that the desire will give you what you need. That's why James, when he's just said to them, the desire gives birth to sin, sin when it's fully grown brings forth death, he says, don't be deceived. He says, there's a lie somewhere at work in your heart underneath all of that. You may not even know what the lie is yet. And the reason why this is such a tricky thing Partly because it's not necessarily an intellectual belief. It's not something that you can necessarily even articulate with your lips. It may not even be a conscious belief. You may not even know what it is going on inside you because it's so deep in the gut. It's almost an emotional, intuitive sense that leads you to temptation and to desire that brings forth sin and death. And also, another reason why it's so hard to uproot, like, like the roots of a weed that go deep inside you, is because the lies that you believe are tailored to you and your unique makeup. And we all believe different lies based on who we are as people, our experiences in life, and so on. So some of you are drawn this way. And maybe your particular proclivity or temptation is towards sexual sin. And others of you are drawn this way, and your particular temptation is towards pride and ambition. And we could list any number of things, couldn't we? But your unique wiring means that you believe certain lies that deceive you in particular ways and cut you off from trusting God in that particular way. Which is one of the reasons why we're called not to judge one another. Because although I can look down on you and say, well, I am not tempted in that way. so easy to resist that sin. Of course, you can look down on me in the ways that I am tempted and the things that I am prone to believe and the paths that I'm prone to wonder. And so what you see is that Underneath it all are lies that stimulate you to act in certain ways. Which is why you struggle to stop sinning. Because you can't just address things at the level of your behavior. You have to address them much deeper at the level of your beliefs. And Sometimes, friends, that's not something you can do alone. Sometimes you have to do that 
with the help of somebody else to analyze and dissect what's going on in your heart until you see the lie for what it is and you can begin to replace it with truth. So there's one area where it breaks down our relationship with God. Here's another. Lies can hold you in slavery in separation from God by becoming a kind of a bondage or a slavery over you in particular ways of living and acting. We can all be enslaved to particular beliefs which become dominant in our minds. And here's what I mean. These are beliefs which don't give you life but can feel like death to you, feel like a yoke on your shoulders. Some of the obvious things are as I've just been describing, sins and temptations, what we disc- the Bible thinks of as the kind of licentiousness, that you give yourself over to particular indulgence, and eventually that sin becomes a bondage, a slavery over you, because you can't break the power of it. And the more you feed something, the more power it has over you. So many people are stuck in cycles of destructive patterns and habits because What initially started as a pleasure-giving thing becomes a destructive thing in your life when you become a slave to it. The book of Galatians talks about how we're meant to restore each other out of these situations of slavery. When a brother becomes bound in a sin, it says, when he becomes enslaved in something. But that's not the only way we become bound. There are also whole ways of thinking and beliefs that bind us that maybe have much more to do with a sense of awe, a sense of law, a sense of... The, what, the way you're expected and, and called to live, which becomes a heavy yoke on your shoulder. And at the root is a lie, but the lie has trapped you. Now this is what happened in the 1500s when Martin Luther came along. The whole of Europe was caught up in a web of in a system of lies that was deeply embedded in the corruption that had become the Catholic Church at the time. Of course, there are many shades of Catholicism today, but at the time, the dominant sense in Catholicism was that you cannot approach God directly, that you have to go through priests and through the mass and through um, saints that you pray to, and that the way, one of the ways you could sort of um, experience God's grace was through purchasing indulgences, through cash. You could buy your way into God's grace. Of course, all of this is a system of slavery that binds people in darkness and makes them not know God because God is far away from them and he's on the other side of all this system of steps and things that you have to get through, which is why Martin Luther himself was broken by the crushing weight of these lies that he was living under until he woke up one day and saw the gospel for what it is in the New Testament, that the just shall be saved by faith. That all you need is to believe on the blood of Jesus Christ and you are forgiven. You are instantly made a child of God. There is no barrier between you and God, whether priest, whether system of law, whether mass, nothing. The old way felt like a bondage. The new way felt like life. And the difference is lies and truth. Truth brings freedom. But people labor under these kinds of illusions as well and these lies today. You think about one of the main sort of systems of law that sits upon our shoulders in our society is the belief that your worth is connected with your intellectual attainments in life or your achievements. It may not feel like a religious view to you, but it is one because it pegs your value against your abilities, your gifts, your achievements, all these kinds of things. So in order to be 
to, to kind of climb up, as it were, to become more righteous in biblical language, but we've reframed it in secular language, is to achieve more, to be better. It's the same thing. It's the same system of lies. And the truth comes in. Jesus says, I love you regardless. Let me give you another example. I risk offending a bunch of you, I know, at this point. But you know I, that happens regularly. So here we go. Um, one of the new sort of new trends that's moving in is the, the restrictions over what we can eat. And, uh, you know, in the Bible, these were called food laws. But today, people are, are bound up in a moral system of what is right and is not right to eat, especially around animals and animal products. And I don't want to, to offend your conscience if you're you know, vegetarian or vegan and you think, you know, rightly before God, in good conscience, this is the way I want to live. But you can very easily see how this can tip from something perhaps harmless to something that is actually the, wake, wake and the, the weight and yoke of law on your shoulders. Because you feel that there's a moral incentive to live a particular way. And you begin to not only feel that for yourself and bind yourself to it, but also to impose it on other people. This is the same exact pattern that works its way out. So that righteousness and, and guilt lie on either side of what you do or don't eat. So that superiority and judgment also are bound up with that whole way of thinking. And so rather than giving life to you and, and bringing bringing freedom to you, you've placed yourself under a yoke which the Bible and God never placed upon you. We need to speak into these things because how easily it's a tendency of the human heart to trip into lies and then be bound up in them, become enslaved to them. I think if Jesus were preaching today, he'd be speaking into that because so many people get caught up in these kind of this is the most important thing in life. This is what we need to be believing in. This is what we need to be uh, all about. And the Bible commends freedom. It commends freedom by the truth. In fact, as I've been trying to show you, lies are at the root of all our separation from God. This is true in the individual level. It's true at the level of whole people groups, whole nations. When you think about the power of what the Bible talks about as idolatry and false religions. Now, I know today it's, it's really, really controversial to ever say that any other religion is wrong. But obviously, that has to be true. They can't all be right. They can't all be equally true. It's impossible. They contradict each other at almost every point. And Paul says in Romans 1, they exchange the truth about God for a lie Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. The Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So it says basically, there is only one truth, the truth. The God who is alive and the way that you can come to know him through his son Jesus. And of course, every other religion shares more or less in common with that. Some of them agree there's one God. Some of them don't agree. They say there's no God's. But whatever they disagree on, there's a whole web of lies that binds people up in not knowing the living God, not knowing the true God through his son, Jesus. And so it's into this, this separation that comes between us and God by the power of lies that we so easily buy into, ideologies. 
that the Bible wants to set us straight by the truth. So how does God do it? And it's not just by presenting us with a new set of truths. It's not just by a new philosophy that you need to buy into. It's not even by a new religion. It's not just by providing you a new answer. The way the Bible combats all of these lies that we've been describing is by a person. This is one of the most unique aspects of the faith that we believe. That God's answer to all the webs of lies and temptation and slavery and the false religion is to give us a person who frees us, who is the kind of the universal key to the lock of our hearts. And that person, of course, is Jesus himself. You can think of him as a kind of an antidote. You know when, when if, you're, if you were ever bitten by a snake, unlikely to ever happen, I grant, but if you were, most snake poisons have an antidote, a chemical which is almost like an equal and opposite force that can diffuse the power of the toxins in your blood, neutralize them, save and preserve your life. And the Bible presents to us Jesus as the universal antidote to lies. It's like we were bitten by the snake in the garden when he began to speak untruths about God. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Don't you know you'll become like God when you do eat this fruit? The snake bit us. And ever since then, lies have been creeping their way through our hearts. Wrong ways of thinking about God. Wrong ways of thinking about life and how you can be happy. What we need is the antidote. The way the Bible speaks about that antidote is it says God stepped in. Jesus the Son of God, the exact image of the Father, the representation of the Father, the one who would show us who God is, stepped into history and began to blow away all the cobwebs of lies in our minds and hearts. And when we look at him, we see truth in the face of Jesus. And he began to lift off the slavery of wrong ways of thinking and the yoke of, and he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. This was one of Jesus' main missions in life in his preaching, wasn't it? To speak about p- to people who were under a yoke of slavery in terms of their belief systems and how the prevailing ideas were separating people from God rather than bringing them near to God. And think about the teaching of the Pharisees and so on. And Jesus came to smash those yokes and break those ways of thinking that don't give you life but rather impose death upon you. And he came to liberate us from temptations. Because it's only in Christ that we can see the the full extent of the goodness of God so that we need never doubt his love for us in that moment of fiery temptation when you think, oh, I just need this and God's not letting me have it. The power to undo the web of that lie in your heart is that if God gave you his son, no lie should take hold of you. The gospel is the answer to the lies that separate us from God himself. What about then the lies that separate us from each other? There are all kinds of ways that lies begin to erode friendships and community, and particularly I'm thinking about the church community, the family of God. Let me give you a few examples. Think about the power of gossip, the slander. The way it happens is someone shares with you a juicy thought about someone that they heard. The book of Proverbs talks about it like this. It says, um, in Proverbs 18, it says, The words of a whisperer are like 
delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. So when you hear something, did you hear about so-and-so? Immediately it's like the smell of a delicious morsel. and You're drawn to it and you want to imbibe. What, what do you know? What happened? Tell me more. Tell me everything you know. And you imbibe the delicious morsel. And it begins to change your view of the other person. Even if you don't believe it, it has that effect on you, doesn't it? It begins to kind of change the way you think about them or the way you treat them. It starts to affect you. Another verse in Proverbs puts it like this. It says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Gossip and slander are potent, potent forces for destroying friendships, even when someone's not done anything against you. Sometimes gossip is... It's just outright lies. Sometimes it's mixed with truth, which is when it's more dangerous because it's kind of slightly believable, but it's truth taken out of context. And it begins to erode how we love each other and speak about each other and think about each other and our friendships with each other. In Proverbs 26, um, he says this, For lack of of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, Quarreling ceases. As soon as you, in other words, you learned this stuff at primary school, didn't you? You take the fuel away, one of the three legs of the stool that creates fire, the fire goes out. As soon as gossip and slander are withdrawn or taken out of a community, relationships flourish. Love and trust abound. And there's a sense that we can know each other and be close to each other without mistrust and questions and all these kinds of things. There's one example. Here's another. What about the power of flattery? Blowing smoke up people's, you know, that's what it is. I'm not speaking here about um, the, what the Bible calls encouragement, which is a good thing. To, to tell people the truth and to build them up in terms of their gifts and, and what God's called them to and speak to the potential in them. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Flattery is a little bit different though, isn't it? Because flattery is usually kind of a lie, maybe an exaggeration. And it's also usually self-serving. If I speak nicely to you, I can get some kind of control over you, and you can, you'll, you'll be nice to me, or you'll benefit me, or you'll, you'll, you'll be kind in return. Flattery is a self-serving way of speaking to each other. And what it does is it begins to breed fake, superficial community where everyone is just wonderful. Everyone, no one's got anything wrong. Everyone's just wonderful. It's all very fake and superficial. And the New Testament vision of the family of God, the people of God, is not one where flattery belongs. Because we're we're told again and again that our job towards one another is to be truth speakers. Teach each other God's ways, challenge sin where we see it. To be open books to one another in the sense that we are open to each other's correction and transforming challenges. In the book of Ephesians, Paul puts it like this. He says, He says, speak the truth in love, or speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as we speak true words to each other with love always in the mix, I can tell you the truth about you, who you are, what's going on in your life, or what I see happening in your heart, but I will do it in love. And as that happens, as you hear the power of truth wrapped in in love, it begins to change you. You begin to see yourself in a new light. You repent of your sin. You want to be more like Jesus. It goes on in that same chapter in Ephesians 4. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. The New Testament community is not meant to be fake. 
which is where we care more about ourselves than we do about the other, which is why we don't tell each other the truth. So our lives begin to disintegrate genuine, loving family relationships in the church, don't they? Here's another example. The temptation that all of us have to just fake it, to lie about ourselves. You can very easily present a kind of honed, managed image of yourself. Here, wherever you are, I think the social media age has brought this to our attention, hasn't it? Because all of us can be our own PR agents in the way we present ourselves to the world. It's one of the great damages of social media is that it is basically full of lies. Look at my life, it's so perfect. But you don't, don't think that this is a new thing. Social media obviously pours fuel on the fire. But don't believe that that's a new thing. The Bible talks about this with the language of hypocrisy. Do you know what the word hypocrite meant in Greek? It was an actor on the stage. It was just the word for an actor. And the actors in the ancient world used to wear masks. So the image that he's telling us when, when Jesus challenges hypocrisy is that if you go through life wearing a mask, hiding the real self, particularly when it comes to religious matters, when it comes to your walk with God, who you are when you, you come into this place, when you relate to one another as family. Can't you see that as you fake it, you're never truly known for who you are or loved for who you are because people can only love the image that you project to them. And so lies disintegrate relationships with one another. You can see how potent and important this is, can't you? The gospel destroys the lies that separate us from each other and break down genuine community. Let me give you an example. Ask yourself, what is a Christian? What does it take to belong to this family? What's the entrance point? How do you become a part of this? And the answer that the New Testament gives us is that you have to begin by acknowledging your absolute brokenness before God. You're a sinner. And baptism is a brilliant picture of this. Baptism is, is meant to be the entrance point into the family of God, into, into God's people. And it's so interesting that the way God set things up is that in the way in is a statement to the world that I'm dead in my sins and I need Jesus to save me. So the only way into the family of God is by jettisoning your fakery telling the truth to others, letting them tell the truth to you, being real, speaking true words. It's a beautiful image, isn't it, of what, what, makes, what sets the people of God apart. It says, you can put it like this, that all of us have to come in on the ground floor. There's no special access points for special people. There's no side entrance for the celebrities. There's no red carpet rolled out for the people with, who are on the guest list. It is simply... If you can get down on your face before God and acknowledge your brokenness, he'll take you. He'll take you into his family. And that ought to diffuse the power of lies that separate us from each other because we all came in the same way. I'm broken, I need Jesus. You know, I contrast that with some of the things, think about exclusive members clubs and, and, and special resorts. We had the opportunity when we were staying with some friends in Hawaii who, these guys were um, good friends to us and they let us stay with them for free 
Um, and we, they're for wedding photographers. They go to all the top resorts in Hawaii, the five-star resorts, and they do wedding photography for couples who've gone for their destination wedding. And they brought us in to one of these special resorts where we were on this private beach, turtles crawling up the sand, and, um, you know, you could go ask for beautiful cocktails and all the rest of it. And whenever I'm being in that kind of a context, I always just have this sensation that I don't quite belong, and someone's going to find out very soon that I'm, I shouldn't be there. See, it really doesn't feel like that at all. She just she struts her way through. But that's it. That you, in order to be there, you kind of have to look like you belong. Like you've got to have a certain swagger, a certain confidence. You know, you can't be like, oh, dithering over the menu and what shall I have and what shall I have? And okay, yes, sorry, please, thank you very much. You have to be, you know, believe you belong. And of course, so to be there, for someone who doesn't belong, you have to fake it. You have to fake it. The church is nothing like that. The church is, you belong here because we're all broken people. So let's just speak the truth to one another. Don't let lies erode our relationships. Don't project a lie. Don't speak lies about each other. Let the truth come and bind us together in love including the truth when you see ugly things in each other. There's nothing more beautiful than healing one another by speaking the truth. It's a potent force for transformation. Let me bring you on to my last idea. Truth about God, truth about each other. What about the truth about yourself? Knowing yourself in truth. I think most of us are caught up in some kind of self-delusion And I can think about two things in particular which the Bible points to. The one is the delusion of self-righteousness, which is the belief that you are better than you really are. And the Bible says there is no greater barrier between you and God than the belief that you think you're a good person. It's true, most typically, for religious people. And if you brought up in a Christian home or in a religious home, you've been brought up with your mother's milk to believe certain things, Your greatest spiritual danger is spiritual pride, self-righteousness. You may not have seen it. I've certainly come to see that in my own heart over the years. That's your greatest spiritual danger because you think you've got it together. That's what Jesus came to smash when he preached to the Pharisees and called them out, described them as whitewashed tombs. In other words, you're painted on the outside all beautiful white, but inside is death and decay. It's like calling someone a toilet in modern ways of thinking. Beautiful, white, shiny toilet. But what's inside? It says, that's your heart. So that's your heart. Self-righteousness. And here's the thing. That, doesn't, that isn't only characteristic of religious people. I think the secular world that we live in is infused with self-righteousness. Most people think they're better than they are. I've got a couple of proofs of that. One of them is most people balk at the idea of judgment. How can God judge? How can God send people to hell? You can only ask that question if you think you're better than you are. If you understood who you are in the light of God's holiness, you would never ask that question. It's a proof, isn't it, that basically the reason why people don't want to know Jesus, they don't want to come to know God, is because they're self-righteous. They think they're okay. They've got their act together. Here's another proof. Look at the expressions of anger which are becoming seem to be dialed up every week, every year in our culture on moral issues, righteous issues. 
And the only way I can be angry is if I think I'm better than you. You see that, I mean, YouTube comments and Twitter threads are where these things particularly find the greatest expression. But the moral superiority, the indignation, the illiberal liberalism that is so prevalent in our age is basically people's self-righteousness on display, all the virtue signaling. I believe in this cause. You should too. People are staking their whole life reputation well-being in the community based on how good they are, essentially. It's the same lie. It's the same lie we tell ourselves. the same delusion that we think about ourselves, which means we can never truly know God if we believe in it. Here's the other one, though. If that's one side of the lie, the other is the delusion of shame, the lie of shame which keeps us from God, where some people think that they're too bad, too sinful, too dirty to ever be loved by God. And it's not, I'm not talking about just recognizing that you're a sinner, which is very important. But the belief that you are so beyond redemption as to be totally unlovable is a potent lie that keeps people from, that they believe about themselves, that keeps them from God distorts everything. It begins to distort your friendships. It begins to distort your service if you're a Christian. It begins to distort your sense of peace in life. And I find it amazing that the gospel can simultaneously smash both of these lies. Tim Keller defines the gospel in a statement that goes something like this, that you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but more loved than you ever dared hope. You can see how at one and the same time, It crushes the self-righteous person and lifts the person caught in shame out of the ditch. I think this is why Jesus spoke in these mysterious ways, like in the in the in the Beatitudes. Do you remember in 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 the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes? He says things like this, which is so mysterious when you think about it. He said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." So he says, "There's there's blessing in becoming poor in spirit, righteous person." Come down and begin to mourn about your state of sin before God. That's the only way you can know him. But at the same time, simultaneously, the gospel is lifting you up because it's saying you then have the kingdom of heaven. You can experience comfort and joy like you've never imagined were possible and peace in yourself for the first time. The gospel simultaneously breaks us and then mends us, brings us down and then elevates us. This is the wonderful paradox of what it means to to know Jesus. So friends, if I want to summarize for you everything I've said today, it's that Jesus removes the lie about God by presenting himself in truth. Jesus removes the lies about each other by calling us to surrender in baptism, repentance, and childlike faith that we come into the community as we are. And he removes the lies we tell ourselves by dismantling both self-righteousness and shame, and speaking into us new truth about who we are in Christ, what it means to be a child of God. And so you see, truth and lies are really about life and death in the Christian thinking. It's everything. It's hard to care too much about the truth. Maybe God's been speaking to you about some of the lies you've been indulging, spreading, part of, caught up in, he wants to come and bring his truth to you. Can we pray?
Lord Jesus, we praise you that you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You didn't say that you would come to show us the way, that you come to tell us the truth, or that you come to give us life. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you that when we look into your face, we see truth fully revealed. And that's where freedom lies. And I pray for anyone who feels like they've been caught in some kind of lie which has separated them from you, from other people, even from themselves. Come and breathe your truth into us again. and Correct us, change us, transform us by the power of the gospel, we pray. Teach us to be truth speakers and how we tell the world about you and how we love others we'd be more like your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen.